Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Moore LePay was released in 1971, making the statistic that 80% of farmland provides only 18% of calories through livestock a rallying cry for a better, more equitable agriculture system. This book gradually grew to sell over 3 million copies and irrevocably changed the way we talk about food, hunger, and culture. Fifty years later, there is a brand new, updated edition out now to meet the urgency of our current environmental moment. Visit dietforasmallplanet.org to learn more and get your copy. Hi, Francis. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. I love it. <laughs> How are you? Where are you? You're in Cambridge, Massachusetts? I'm in Belmont, which is just okay. very close. <laughs> to Cambridge where our office is, but I'm working in a cottage in my home now nice. because of the COVID right. isolation. Yeah. Well, can you tell me about where you grew up and what you ate? <laughs> I grew up in Cowtown, literally called Cowtown as a nickname, <laughs> Fort Worth, Texas. And the stockyards were never far from my uh, <laughs> smell distance. Um so yeah, we ate in, you know, that was the 40s and 50s, and we ate meat at the center of every meal. You know, what's for dinner, mom? Oh, pork chops or you know, meatloaf. It was that was the center of the meal. And um, I mean, we we ate healthfully in the sense that my mom never got onto the processed food. You know, white bread was a really big deal when I was growing up. We had a big white bread factory on the way to town. You could smell the smell. Um, but my mom always served us whole wheat bread. And she all, when she made after school cookies, she always put in a lot of nuts and things that were good for us. So, uh, but generally we ate the typical diet, but we, you know, without the soda pop in the fridge, we never had that, but it was pretty standard. <laughs> well, you know, as the author of such a historically significant book on diet and the environment, you know, I would think people are curious about how you eat on, and shop for food on a regular basis. So I wanted to ask what your weekly kind of eating and, and, and food sh shopping and acquiring look like. Well, um, for years now during the summer, and we still are getting them, we are part of a community supported agriculture so we get this huge bag of, um, of veggies every week, too much for me and my partner to eat. So we share them with a neighbor. Um, so that's a lot of our veggie, fresh veggie intake. Uh, we also, that we're very big on eating organic and the only access is primarily whole foods and Trader Joe's mm -hmm. as we're trying to get Trader Joe's to carry more organic. <laughs> But when we don't have our community-supported agriculture, we rely on those sources for fresh veggies. Um, my kitchen, if you could see it, it has this huge shelf of jars with all the various, you know, the quinoa, the <laughs> brown rice, the black beans, the chickpeas, you know, all dried. And so I have a lot of stuff. We could probably live for a few months on what we have on those shelves. Um, and I kind of, I'm a cook that I kind of wing it. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really encourage people not to be intimidated by recipes, but just to be inspired and motivated by recipes. 
and think of recipes as just a source of ideas, but not you don't have to be a slave to them mm-hmm. and to feel free to add more or less of your family's favorite herbs and substitute veggies and just, yeah, I, I uh, it's funny that somebody with so many recipes in her book <laughs> is not, you know, I'm advocating don't be a slave to them, but I hope that I guess I, I've always hoped that our recipes would be inspiration and motivation to say, oh, I didn't know you could do that with that. And uh, I was just talking to somebody yesterday about one of our recipes from the very, very first edition called Roman Rice and Beans. And the concept was to take the basic Latin combo, but just try throwing Italian herbs in there instead of the more traditional cumin and that sort of thing that you associate with beans right. and rice. And, I, I, so yeah, and, and just try new stuff like this is not um, the best thing I've ever made, but just instant <laughs> dinner the other night. I, I had a, a frozen, frozen uh, roasted corn. So it's corn, you know, shelled corn, but roasted. So it has that smoky flavor. And I threw that in the blender with, um, with corn, I mean, excuse me, with uh, carrots that we've mm-hmm. gotten from the CSA. And I didn't ha- prepare either. I just washed them, you know, washed yeah. the carrots and threw them in the blender with the, and then I added some veggie, um, veggie, uh, what's the bullion. word? Bullion. <laughs> bullion. Thank you. I added some veg- veggie bullion and some liquid and it made it into a delicious soup, you know? Nice. And so I, I think that was, you know, I was really pleased because it was, I was using what I had on hand and it was so fast and it was so healthy. Um, so that's the spirit of Diet for a Small Planet, really to free us and to, you know, because when I first moved into the plant-centered eating world, people thought, oh, you're sacrificing. Oh, how do you make that big sacrifice? And I said, Oh, no, (laughs) it was discovery because I was the classic female. Maybe it's not true anymore, but in the 50s, there was just this weight fixation. And I was always counting calories, even though I was never overweight, but, you know, uh, uh, statistically, but I felt like I needed to always lose 10 pounds. And I think a lot of women feel that way. And so I was always counting calories in my head. And it was, I was a slave to obsession about counting calories. And I'd finish one meal and, oh, how many do I have left for the next meal? It was terrible. But I just thought that's the way one lives until I started eating in the plant world more. And all of that just evaporated. And my body just wanted what was healthy for me. And, and I did lose those 10 pounds over time, but I never counted calories from that time on, and I've never changed my weight in, um, you know, 50 years, wow. <laughs> pretty much. So it, it just like, I felt like my body was just so much more in tune. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have any more cravings. I looked forward to eating, but it wasn't that, oh, I've got to have that, you know, kind of feeling. And so it was freedom, it was just freedom for me. And I, maybe my metabolism is different from others. But all I can really share is my own experience, mm-hmm. of course. And that was my experience that it was, it was a win, 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 win. You know, I right. felt so empowered that I was aligning with the earth, best for my body, best for, the, you know, the world in terms of abundance for everyone. And 
So it never felt like a sacrifice. Right. And do you use that phrase to describe your diet plant-centered? I do now. Yes. Yeah, because I think that's the most all-inclusive. Well, I use that and I use plant and planet-centered because now we know so much more about the implications of our uh, very, very wasteful use of the land Mm -hmm. and destruction of rainforest to support the grain-fed, meat-centered diet. So I wanted to emphasize plant-centered, but planet we're taking the whole planet into our consciousness and i like that better than vegetarian um because it doesn't send a message right 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 (laughs) well you know there have been regularly released editions of diet for a small planet in the last 50 years and you know so readers have been able to understand you know changes in your perspective changes in information that you've been sharing and but what are the most significant ways you do you think that that your thinking has changed from 1971 to 2021? Well, what I I mean, I think all of us have learned or all of us who are attending to this piece of the puzzle, we have learned that how we use our land so greatly affects climate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we think about smokestacks when we... Typically, we have thought about smokestacks, mm-hmm. um, about car emissions, when we think about the human creation of this climate catastrophe. But very, very important, very central is the role of food and farming. And it's estimated that our food system could contribute as much as 37% of greenhouse gas emissions. And livestock alone um, and some say even higher. And uh, they point out that if cows (laughs) were a cow country, it would be contributing about uh, the sixth greatest uh, emitter of greenhouse gas emissions. So it's right up there with the problem. And therefore, the more we align with our bodies, which thrive so much better with a plant-centered diet, the more we then align with our goal of stopping this climate catastrophe. And we also uh, also prevent all sorts of harm to other species. And I think the two things that I emphasize in the new edition, mm-hmm. um, so much that I've learned is that um, one is the climate factor and the other is that um, natural historians tell us that we are at the brink of the sixth great extinction of of species that something like a million species now are threatened with extinction. And that um, we've lost something like 40% of insect species. So that's huge. And it's something that I didn't appreciate when I, you know, in earlier editions. And so that's why I call it now this broader, it's not just a climate crisis, is it it is an assault on nature that our food is implicated in and is the real crisis. Um, because of course, biodiversity, as I'm sure you know, is the basis of all life. And so I, I, in the new edition of Diet for Small Planet, I use the phrase of my hero, Jane Goodall. Mm-hmm. And she talks about the tapestry of life and how we have to um, both stop tearing it and and mend it. And so I use that metaphor and talk about the tears and the tapestry of life. And one of them certainly is this species decimation 
and that is through so much of the of the um, use of harmful chemicals in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Right, and you know, also in the last fifty years, what are the books that have come out that have influenced your thinking uh, more than anything, or or what are the most significant, you know, in texts on environmentalism and the global food system? I see eating to- tomorrow on your shelf. Yeah, um, yeah. Book. Uh, okay, I had jotted down some titles, but maybe I can remember that. Um, yeah, Eating Tomorrow by my ally and colleague, Tim Weiss, and of course, my daughter's book. Right. Uh, she was the first one, Diet for a Hot Planet. I think she was one of the early um, uh, people to focus on the contribution of um, our food system to climate change. And um, Raj Patel's book, Stuffed and Starved, and... Um, of course, Bill McKibben's book back in the 80s, The End of Nature, I still remember. I can still remember where I was mm-hmm. um, in Wisconsin at the time when I first read that book. So those are some of the books that have really made a huge impact. I've been influenced also by the work of David Corton, Corporations Rule the World, The Great Turning. He's also a very integrated thinker. So, so those are some of the people who have influenced me a great deal. Right. And, you know, uh, one of the things, the common refrains that people say about changing person, they don't want to change their personal behavior because they're, that's not as meaningful as, you know, regulating emissions by corporations and that sort of thing. And I, I have the 10th anniversary edition of Diet for a Small Planet, and I was on a podcast about cars, the war against cars, talking about food stuff. But I quoted from your book about how I should have written down exactly. <laughs> but um you wrote, oh, a change in diet is a way of saying simply, I have a choice. And so I always think of that is, is that, and that's what I talked about on the podcast too, is that I like to get up every day and do and feel I have agency in the world. (laughs) And, and that the, the foundation of my work in the world is my own personal actions. But, you know, it's becoming more and more of a common refrain to say that your personal choices don't mean anything, even as the climate crisis worsens. And so I wanted to ask what your response is to that, to to people who say that there are personal changes and consumption changes are too small. Well, it's it's just the false frame for me anyway. And I think for so many human beings that, the more that we don't feel like a victim, you said agency, that's it. The more that we feel that we do have power, the more likely it is that we're going to take the next step and the next step and we'll be attuned and we'll read what we need to know and we'll talk to people about it and get people uh, awake. I, I don't, this, to me, it's an absolutely false, a false dichotomy. In my life, it's, it's oh yeah, I'm not a victim. I can make a difference. And every time that I align my life with the world I want, I am stronger. I'm more convincing to myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes us automatically more convincing to other people. I mean, if we preach about climate change and then they say, wait a minute, you're, you know, you're running your, oh, you know what I just heard about leaf blowers? (laughs) They're like the worst thing ever. (laughs) They almost were too noisy for this interview, but they turned them off across the street. But, you know, the more that we can align with with the world we want, uh, 
Absolutely, the more credible we become. And, right. and I think people sense that and they say, yeah, it's possible. I guess that's the thing. If we don't think that change is possible for ourselves and demonstrate that by, by changing our behavior, then how can we think the world can change, right? So it's, yeah, I just really hate that. And uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm all for all of the above, you know, yes, and, yes. and that's why I'm very, you know, we're, our institute is very much a player in the democracy movement. And I encourage people that we used to say about President Jerry Ford, you know, you can chew gum and walk at the same time. You can be part of the food movement and you can be part of the democracy movement. It's not a trade-off. One can alert you to the other. And because I do believe that, yes, we have to change the, the laws and the, the, I like to call them enforceable standards rather than regulations, but regulation will do too. But we have to, we have to, as a society, set the rules so that we're encouraging more plant-based eating and we're getting rid of this very, very harmful diet because I'm sure you know, it's not just for the sake of some distant ch children who have to grow up in a climate chaotic world, but I, uh, I think everyone should know that now processed meat that is a fifth of all of our meat consumption is a carcinogen as defined by the World Health Organization. And uh, red meat in general is a probable carcinogen. So it's, it's on every level of responsibility and health and, and alignment that I think our diet choices are so important. Right, right. And, you know, in the popular imagination, I'm a little bit obsessed with this right now because I just did a lot of research into lab lab meat and, and other types of oh. meat, which anyway, so the future of food, this phrase, people only use it to refer really to technology-based kind of solutions to climate right. change. And so I wanted to ask, you know, if you were to define or to reframe how people think of the future of food, like how would you want people to think of it instead, as instead of being something about technology, like what, what is your future what of is, food? My future of food is that we are much more integrated. I think of the security supporting the agriculture as a symbol of that or an example of that. That, that where our food comes from is much more local mm -hmm. and personal in that way. And farmers markets are everywhere. We have one in our town. And then in our office, we have one across the street on Fridays <laughs> that I love. Um, so one, it, that we're closer to it and we're closer to our farmers and they are honored in a way uh, that they are not today. Um, and that we have the rules that um, insist that you you know, we're not using chemicals that can make farm workers sick. As I think the statistic is that half the world's farmers and farm workers are poisoned each year. I mean, no, that means we're poisoned too as consumers. Uh, we do not need that. And that we are using our resources very efficiently so that we are, um, I, I myself, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that no one should ever eat meat, of course. I mean, that's, that's not the point. Um, but um, I honor those, I honor vegans and others who, who take that stand. But uh, my vision is that, yes, uh, the growing is much more integrated into our lives. Every school has a, has a school garden, you know, so little kids can, can actually grow food. 
and then eat the food they've grown. So that, and then that we just obviously set the rules to protect our health because we have democracy that's really answering to us and not to the Monsantos of the world, uh, not to the large corporations. So I, I just see us much healthier than we are today and uh, much more just feeling good about ourselves because we, our bodies are more aligned. I mean, just on that point, 60% of the calories we now eat have no nutritional value. I mean, and it's tragic. If you add all of those who are pre-diabetic to the actual diabetes, it comes to about 45%. It's almost half of us are either pre-diabetic or diabetic. And that's so debilitating mm -hmm. and so life-threatening. So I just see us much healthier, more integrated into our, our environments of food and food production and much less obsessed about our bodies because um, they're, they're working for us and we, we become the shape sort of that our metabolism and our genes meant us to be. And there are a variety of shapes that, that are fine. You know, yeah. there's no body shaming anymore. Yeah. Um, so all of that is what I hope, and it would just reduce so much depression and, and ill health and our medical bill would go way down because something enormous, I don't have exact number, but in billions and billions of dollars of our health expenditures are related to our diet. Right. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask also, you know, about the idea of lab meat as a solution to meat consumption issues and livestock related greenhouse gas emissions. You know, I wanted to ask what your perspective is on lab lab grown meat, you know, which has a, a ton of money behind it right now, both, you know, private venture capital and also now from the USDA. Well, it's just, it's such a diversion, right? At the very best is what I could say about it is such a diversion because we're still it's still highly processed, so we're not getting the kind of fiber we need. It's still filled with additives, all of which, you know, we don't understand all of the implications of those. And it keeps us fixated on one piece of the meal when it, it keeps us from this attitude of, hey, you know, I could be, I can be a creator in the kitchen and I it can be fun and I can be experimental. It keeps us locked into a certain definition of what a meal is. It still has to have meat at the center. And it keeps us obsessed about protein, mm -hmm. which, you know, we now know that Americans eat about twice the protein their bodies can even use. And I just want to underscore here that I'm sure you know, you know, we don't store protein right. so that if we eat more than we need, it just becomes more calories that we use as if it were carbs or fat. So um, it doesn't really help. And, and it leaves power in the hands of the corporate sector. Um, so it helps to concentrate control in our food system. Yeah, I guess, you know, fiber, um, additives, <laughs> you know, uh, all of these questions come into play. And, and but most important, it kind of keeps us obsessed with meat and protein. Right, right. No, I, I agree. That is the uh, a huge aspect that I think that's why the media has, has been latching onto it is because people are obsessed with protein. It is still people's first uh, comment when they talk about, oh, maybe I'll stop eating meat, but I just worry so much about protein. And I personally never have worried about, I haven't eaten meat in 10 years, but 
you know, at a, there was a point where I was exercising a lot and I did have to think about it, but for the most part, it's really not that it's not that difficult. It's not, you know, your body tells you what you need when you're, when you're eating, you know, what you, what you should be eating. Yeah. But yeah. It's, it's such an obsession. <laughs> and, and, and what, what I think we, I hope we make clear in diet for a small yeah. planet is virtually every food has some protein exactly. in it. Yeah. Um, some has more than others. And we know in the plant world, where it, we really get the protein hit is in the legume world of peas, beets, lentils, and, 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 and nuts. And by the way, peanuts are a legume I learned years ago <laughs> and they're packed with protein, but all, you know, all nuts and seeds. I love seeds. So they have a lot of protein, but yeah, those are the main sort of protein, high power protein in the plant world, but all veggies have some protein yeah. and so it's just you don't have to sweat it i mean that's what the scientists are telling us if we eat a healthy diet with a variety of foods we're covered right right absolutely and so even though you know plant-based eating has kind of gotten more traction lately it's still considered niche um and i wanted to ask what you think food media's role is in educating the public on issues around food and sustainability and, and basically all the things you've written about in Diet for a Small Planet, which remain kind of un undercovered, I would say, in food media, you know, where you're giving rest, you know, you're talking to the people who are cooking and shopping for food, but you're like not really giving them the tools to understand the implications of of what they're eating and what they're cooking. And so I wanted to ask, do you think food media has done any sort of job, good or bad on communicating about climate change and sustainability? I don't think I'm an expert <laughs> on it. Just so much of my focus of my life has been, is certainly in recent years on the democracy movement. Right. And, um, but I think uh, certainly Food media can, all, you know, with every recipe we put out, I think about the New York Times that I read, whenever it's putting forth anything about food to remind people, it's, that would be easy to do, remind people that getting enough protein is not a problem <laughs> in the plant world. And this this dish that, you know, that this recipe, by, by the way, without any major protein-focused addition to it, it's, it's offering plenty of protein. So... I think there could be more awareness for sure in debunking the myths that do, um, you know, make people hesitant right. and, um, and, and just underscoring always the, the benefits to our health. I mean, I think that's so important. The, 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 the evidence that plant-based eating actually contributes to longevity. You know, when, when I started out 50 years ago, the only uh, control group we had, so to speak, <laughs> was Seventh-day Adventists right. who were vegetarians and they had longer lives. And so <laughs> typically, mm -hmm. so, uh, but now we have much more evidence of how plant-based diets can contribute um, both to disease reduction and to longer lives. Right. Well, do you think, what do you think in the future? You said before that, you know, whereas earlier editions of Diet for a Small Planet were focused on hunger, now it's, you're focused on, on climate change more. What, what do you think is uh, the next pressing issue that we can talk about in, in the food system? 
I would say it's not a shift. It's a both. I mean, right. it's adding it's the yeah. climate, the climate focus, the climate to all of our thinking about food because hunger, tragically, right. hunger is still very, very much with us. One in three people in the world still does not have access to an adequate diet. The most heartbreaking statistic on hunger is that one out of every four young children suffers stunting, which is a devastating condition that is, has, it's not just being short, it has lifelong impact on functioning. So uh, hunger is still, but then making clear that it's nothing to do with the actual food supply because we have about a quarter more food per capita than we did back when I wrote Diet for Small Planet. So hunger is still very much a human-made tragedy. And in addition to that, the climate crisis is very much worsened by this grain-fed meat-centered diet, which is a product of economic and political systems that don't reflect the majority view. So it's, you know, it's all connected. And that's what's so beautiful about an ecological worldview is that we we can see those connections. And I quote in the new book, I quote my dear friend now deceased, but he, a German physicist, Hans-Peter Dürer, said to me, Frankie, in biological systems, there are no parts, only participants. And that's throughout all of our social and biological. Uh, we are all participants and everything we do and don't do is shaping the larger tapestry of life. Absolutely. Well, I wanted to ask to finish, how do you define abundance for yourself, for the world? <laughs> well, I think, gosh, I've never been asked that question. I think the first thing I can feel my body in my body is just my shoulders relax. Abundance just means that I don't have to worry. I don't have to worry about feeding myself, my partner, um, if I had kids, I just not to have to worry that I will have what I need to live a fulfilling life and to be a good parent. I mean, that to me is abundance. It's not about having two or three homes um, or a million dollars in savings. Um, it is about knowing that I'm okay. I can really get up in the morning and uh, do something purposeful and be responsible and know that there's, there is enough for me to live healthy and take care of my loved ones. Right. That is abundance. And there's more than enough in this beautiful, beautiful earth of ours to allow every one of us to live that way more than enough. And that is so tragic that that anxiety and fear is so ingrained and I think uh, very much that it's that anxiety and fear produced by this concentrated concentrated wealth that infects political system that's what leads to the finger pointing and the blaming because we're told to blame ourselves for our struggle rather than the rules that are created by our broken and corrupted democracy and that so it's it's a spiral then if we blame ourselves and feel shame then we want to find somebody else to, to play. And rather than looking at the underlying rules and norms that um, have been created that so limit us. Yeah. So I think the shift of understanding to an ecological worldview is totally key. 
and letting go of the finger pointing. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, my great pleasure. What fun. Thank you.